Please turn to the Old Testament and the book of Numbers. And we have two readings from Numbers this evening, the first from chapter 10 and the second from chapter 11. I beg pardon, first from chapter 11 and the second from chapter 12. These two chapters together give us the uh, first three instances of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness and the two readings are designed to help us capture a flavour for what's going on. So Numbers chapter 11, reading from the first verse. This is God's word. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in, a, in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, each one at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Amen. Turn back now to the book of Numbers, and we're going to read from chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, from the first verse. It's here again, God's word. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. 
and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spat in her face, should she not be ashamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Amen. And we trust that God will follow the public reading of his word with his blessing. Numbers 11 and 12 portray the danger of grumbling. The danger of grumbling. Now every honeymoon comes to an end. And all married couples face the challenge of actually living together. How sad it is then when husband or wife begins to grumble and complain and find fault with their spouse. It doesn't bode well for the future. And there's a sense in which that's what happens in Numbers 11 and forwards. Israel starts to grumble. Now no blame here lies with God. God is the ideal husband, if you like. If you were to read through Numbers chapters 1 to 10, you would find that God, the ideal husband, has done great things for Israel. He has organized Israel as his kingdom, enlisting the men into his army, arranging the people's encampment about his royal pavilion, and enrolling the Levites as, if you like, his civil servants. And he's bestowed blessing on Israel. We thought about it this morning Blessing Israel Israel personally with nothing less than the gospel blessings that are mediated through his son. And then he has promised to lead and protect his people on their journey through the wilderness and to bring Israel into his own rest in his own land. God is so generous. He is so benevolent. And he is like this so much so to Israel that Moses is able to say to his brother-in-law, Hobab, come with us and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. God will do us good. But Israel starts grumbling. Look at what happens 
more or less as soon as the people leave Sinai. Chapter 11, verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. That word translated misfortunes really means evil or distress or misery. The word is the exact opposite of good. God had done them nothing but good, organizing their national life, bestowing rich blessings, promising protection and rest. Good was behind them. Good was before them. Good was all around them, but they grumbled about their misery. Their misery. And this sets the tone for what follows. Because complaining is going to be the theme music that accompanies Israel on its wandering through the wilderness. Dennis Cole writes that Israel's journey presents not merely a geographical movement from Sinai, but a theological movement away from God during a period of continual rebellion. Unity turns to disunity, righteousness to rebellion, order to disorder, holiness to harlotry, and hope to despair. The people of God reject his lordship, his land, and his leader. The honeymoon is at an end. So this evening we're going to think about how this plays out in Numbers chapters 11 and 12 as, Israel's, as Israel journeys through the wilderness of Paran. These chapters are going to warn us about the danger of grumbling and it's played out in three bouts of complaining. The first bout of complaining in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, shows us that grumbling displeases God. It's dead simple, isn't it? But grumbling displeases God. It says the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes or their grief or their evil. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the point being made is that their grumbling displeased God. <coughs> now we want to be clear about a number of things about this from the outset so that we won't misunderstand what's happening here. First of all, we don't want to think that the Bible suggests that we live in some weird Pollyanna universe in which only good things ever happen. And there's never any cause for complaint. Because clearly we do not live in that sort of universe. Israel had entered the wilderness. And the place was by nature inhospitable. And this was a real challenge to their faith. Because personal disappointments failed relationships, chronic illnesses, financial difficulties and family anxieties are the norm and not the exception. 
Nevertheless, to grumble about them displeases God. The second clarification is that this warning against grumbling is not about good manners. Now, there is, of course, good manners, and there is a kind of stoic acceptance of disappointments that refuses to grumble, just as there's also a kind of buoyant optimism that says, okay, things aren't great just now, but just round the corner, something better will crop up. That is not what this passage is about. Because the Bible, believe it or not, is not a book of good manners. You can find good manners almost anywhere. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians can give you good manners. An atheist can exhibit good manners. You see, good manners is not what this passage is about. This passage is about Israel's relationship with her Redeemer. And by grumbling, Israel was saying something not about her circumstances, but about her God, her husband. Now what that was, we'll see in a moment. But just for now, the point is that we are in a specifically Gospel relationship with God. God has united us by his spirit to his son. And in that sense, we are the happiest people on the face of the earth. Philippians chapter 4 tells us to rejoice in the Lord. So important, Paul says it again. Rejoice. And then he goes on to say that we are to present our prayers to God with thanksgiving. Now, is it any wonder then that it doesn't please God when instead of rejoicing in the Lord Jesus and offering God our thanks and sending up petitions to his throne of grace, instead of that, we grumble? So that's the second clarification. This is not about good manners. It's about our gospel relationship with God in Christ. The third clarification is that the conditions in the wilderness are no surprise to God. It is, after all, God who leads Israel from Sinai into the wilderness. It is his pillar of smoke. It is his Ark of the Covenant that leads the people. So God's not surprised by the circumstances in which Israel finds itself. And in this respect, actually, there's an important parallel with the Lord Jesus. Because the Gospels tell us that after he was baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit led him out. In fact, it said the Spirit drove him out into the Judean wilderness. Because God wanted Jesus to go there. God imposed a period of severe deprivation on his beloved son at the start of his public ministry. That period of deprivation did not deny God's relationship with his son. It affirmed his relationship with his son. And God's beloved son didn't complain. He complied. 
So unlike Israel, so unlike us. But it's a fact that God arranges all the circumstances of our lives. The unwelcome just as much as the welcome. And he does this because he knows what he is doing. God is not confused or mistaken or caught out or absent-minded. He is good and wise and intentional. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There is God's good intention, his wise purpose for us, to perfect us. So if we grumble when we meet trials of various kinds, it's a bit like saying that God is not good and not wise and not capable. And if that's what we are saying, then should we be surprised that God is displeased by our grumbling? One more clarification. God's displeasure with our grumbling may well be restrained. The Hebrew text probably means that God's anger burned against the people rather than among them. And that the fire consumed the outlying parts of the camp but not the camp itself and that it didn't kill anybody. It just Frightened them. Death would come later. When the people persisted in grumbling, death would come. But not at the outset. At the outset, God displayed his patience and God was restrained. And if you like, the fire that consumed the outlying parts of the camp was like the frown on the face of a most loving father. And that frown ought to be enough of a warning to his children that they are getting very near to the point where they will cross the line in their behaviour to what displeases their father and they should desist immediately. God is patient with us. But we must not mistake his patience for indulgence. He really does not like it when his people grumble and complain. So it's dead simple. But Israel's first bout of complaining shows that grumbling displeases God. It gets a bit more serious now. Because the second bout of grumbling from verse 4 of chapter 11 and forwards, it shows us that Grumbling blinds us to God's goodness. Grumbling blinds us to God's goodness. Look at verses 4 to 6. The people of Israel wept again and said, 
Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. What has happened here is that the grumbling of the people has blinded them to God's goodness. And their grumbling, their blindness, is expressed in two ways. On the one hand, they have a very rose-tinted memory of the past. We remember all the great variety of food we enjoyed just over a year ago in the land of Egypt and how convenient and inexpensive it all was. Which may or may not have been true. It's true that Egypt was very fertile. The annual flooding of the Nile deposited rich alluvial soil along the banks of the river and so the fields were fertile and well watered and Egypt was rightly known as the breadbasket of the ancient world so of course there was plenty of food and the river itself provided plenty of fish and in that sense the people's memory was accurate and they had forgotten just one tiny detail that they had been slaves And that their access to the food provided by Egypt came at the cost of their liberty and their lives. They remembered the food they enjoyed well enough. But in their grumbling, they had forgotten God's grace. That God had freed them from the burden of forced labor and the whip of the cruel slave driver. Their grumbling blinded them to the reality of God's redemptive grace. And then it blinded them to the generosity of God's present provision. They looked at the manna that God provided day by day and they said, Our strength is dried up. You know, as though it hadn't been completely exhausted by the forced labor imposed on them by their Egyptian taskmasters. And all we have to look at is this manna. It's like so dismissive. Oh, just this manna. And yet the manna was a daily miracle. Enough to feed a company of two million people. And the text tells us that it didn't taste half bad. It was like cakes baked with oil. So not at all unlike having a regular supply of grain for milling and baking. And all for free. A gift of divine generosity. But because their grumbling had blinded them, they dismissed this divine generosity as contemptible. And they despised the token of God's grace. And isn't that shockingly ungrateful? But that's what a discontented heart will do. That's how it will express itself. We look at all the things that God has given us and we say, thanks, but no thanks. Let me give you two examples. Grumbling will make us forget God's superlative grace in giving himself to us to be our blessedness and our reward. 
And that happens when we are deceived by riches. You'll remember the parable of the sower. You'll remember the seed that grew up among the weeds. You remember how the weeds choked the seed so that it failed to produce a crop. And you'll remember that Jesus explained that this was the person who hears the word of God. And the word of God tells this person about the most amazing gift that God has given himself to his people without any reservation whatsoever. But the word also says that the enjoyment, the full enjoyment, the consummate enjoyment of that gift awaits the world to come. And because the full enjoyment of the gift is deferred, just as the enjoyment of the land of Canaan was deferred for Israel in the wilderness, so because the enjoyment of the gift is deferred, little by little, a person begins to forget it. And instead, he begins to refocus his attention on the things of the here and now. And the enjoyment of present tangible goods, whether real or imaginary, distracts that person from the future beatitude that's promised to him in the gospel. And such a person ends up saying, Pa, to eternal life. And he grumbles that that is just pie in the sky when you die. I want steak on my plate while I wait. Such a person is shockingly blind to God's goodness. The second example concerns the way in which the offences that other people give us cause us to grumble and then that grumbling leads us to dismiss God's grace. And this concerns forgiveness because isn't forgiveness a great grace? God has forgiven all our sins, a grace of incalculable magnitude. You'll remember the other parable, the one about the servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents is the equivalent of what a labourer would earn in 200,000 years of labour in the ancient world. In other words, this was a sum of money that the man was never, ever going to be able to pay back. And what did his master do? He forgave it all. Forgave it all. And was the servant grateful? Not a bit of it. He forgot his master's mercy and he pursued another servant who owed him a hundred denarii, which is what a labourer could earn in four months. So it's not nothing, but neither is it 200,000 years of labour. And he grabbed this other servant by the throat and he shouted at him. And when the man couldn't pay him back, he threw him into the debtor's prison. So what did the master say to the unforgiving servant? He said to him, you are a wicked servant. And he threw him into jail. And Jesus said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
What shocking unforgiveness. But that's what grumbling will do to you. The ingratitude that you express when you complain about how hard your life is, especially when the hard thing you're complaining about is the consequence of what someone else has done, you know, that may well morph into unforgiveness and hardness of your heart. Some of the difficulty of life is caused by other people. And if we refuse to forgive people for the trouble they cause us, we are just like the Israelites speaking dismissively about the manna. Only in our case it's vastly more shocking because God has graced us so very richly by forgiving us our sins. And what do we say in, in, in reply, in response? We say, but because so-and-so has done this or that to me, my strength is dried up. My life is miserable because of what they have done. And I have nothing to look at but this divine grace of forgiveness. You know, when you say it like that, don't you see how shocking it is? But that's what grumbling does. It blinds us to the outstanding grace of God, just as it did in Israel's second bout of grumbling. So God is displeased and we are blinded. And finally, in Israel's third bout of grumbling in chapter 12, we see that grumbling turns us against God's authority. Grumbling turns us against God's authority. Miriam and Aaron grumbled against Moses. It's worthwhile remembering what age these three people are. Moses is 81 coming 82. Aaron is 84 coming 85. Miriam, we don't know her age, but she's probably in her early 90s. Surprising, isn't it? But it appears that there was some sort of simmering resentment, probably on Miriam's part, but also Aaron was taking part in it too. And it was a simmering resentment against Moses' preeminence. And that, uh, that resentment gets sublimated, because that's often what we do with resentment. It gets sublimated and it comes out in a complaint, a grumble against Moses for marrying a Cushite woman. Well, that's only the baseline for Miriam's grumble. But then she plays a riff on that baseline. And the riff is this. Has the Lord indeed only spoke, sorry, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And maybe that doesn't look like much to us, but it is a very serious charge. One that God takes very seriously. And he calls Miriam and Aaron to book. And he says, in effect, Moses is not your common or garden variety of prophet. Moses is something quite unique. Because I have invested my authority in Moses in a manner in which I have not invested it in anybody else. What God actually says is, my servant Moses is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly and not in riddles. 
and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Do you see what God is saying? God is saying that when Miriam and Aaron grumbled against Moses, they were really grumbling against God and turning against God's authority. Now this is not about your pastor. When God gives you a pastor, this is not going to be about him. This is not about your session. This is not about presbytery and it's not even about the synod of the church. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one in whom God has invested his authority. He is the one against whom we dare not grumble. You see, there are three things that link the Lord Jesus to Moses in this passage. Moses is called an outstandingly humble man. It's really instructive that Moses wasn't bothered to try and defend himself against Miriam and Aaron. He left that entirely in the hands of God. And isn't that exactly like the Lord Jesus? Didn't he allow men to falsely accuse him and put him to death? Did he ever try to vindicate himself? No, he left his vindication entirely in the hands of his father. And in fact, that is precisely why he is now king of kings and lord of lords. It is because he humbled himself that God has highly exalted him. So there's one way in which Moses and Jesus are linked here. God also links Moses to Jesus when he calls him a servant faithful in all my household. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 5 picks up exactly that saying and asserts the superiority of Jesus who is faithful over God's house, not as a servant, but as a son now, if to grumble against God's servant is serious, how much more serious to grumble against God's son? And then thirdly, when God says that he speaks to Moses mouth to mouth and that Moses sees God's form, that also links him to Jesus. But in John chapter 1, verse 18, we're not told that Jesus sees God's form but that he sees God's face and that Jesus makes God fully known. And do you understand then what that means for anyone who persistently grumbles against the authority of the Lord Jesus? If, grumbling, if the grumbling of Miriam and Aaron turned them against God's authority invested in Moses, then grumbling has the power to turn us against God's authority invested in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you see then what a terribly, terribly dangerous thing grumbling is. It's not just a matter of impolite manners or an unpleasant disposition. It is rather a rejection of the gospel of our salvation. It displeases God 
It blinds us to God's goodness and worst of all, it turns us against God's anointed, the Lord Jesus. So, are you a grumbler? I mean really, as you look in your heart, are you a grumbler? And if you are a grumbler, then what are you going to do about it? Because you cannot afford to remain a grumbler. Grumbling killed Israel. Grumbling will kill you too. And you mustn't have a little reserve in your heart where you allow grumbling to reside. It isn't safe. It will grow and it will infect your whole being. You cannot afford to be a grumbler. So what are you going to do about it? Well, this is what you must do. You must work your way back through Israel's first three bouts of grumbling. When you make a mistake, you're, you're on a journey, you've taken a wrong turning somewhere. You have to work your way back to where you made the wrong turning and start again. So we have to work our way back through these three bouts of grumbling. And this is what you must do. You must submit to the Lord Jesus. You must really submit to him. You must embrace his total lordship over your life including that private little reserve where you think you can allow grumbling to remain. And you must thank God for his goodness. Day by day, deliberately and intentionally thanking him and exercising gratitude not only towards God, but exercising gratitude in your relationships with all the people round about you. I... I, genuinely believe that this is the power of that summary of Psalm 100 and, and the usefulness of reminding yourself of this every day that God is good and I belong to him and so I am satisfied. Say it day by day. And then don't displease God with your grumbling but seek to live for God's pleasure. Will that take you out of the wilderness? No, it will not. Here we are in the wilderness still. But unlike Israel, who in the wilderness walked away from God, you will at least be walking with the Lord. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Loving God, we want to thank you that you truly are good. There's no shifting shadows in you, but you are the good Father. And from you come down to us every good and perfect gift. And we thank you that you control all the circumstances of our lives. You know exactly where we are.
because this is your plan. And we thank you that the goal of your plan is exceedingly good, that we will see the face of our Father and live. So please forgive us for our grumbling. And please, we ask that your Son, Jesus Christ, would indeed be Lord over us entirely without any reservation on our part. We ask that by his Spirit he would be teaching us day by day to be seeing, observing, acknowledging and thanking you for all that you have done for us, all that you have given to us, all that you plan for us. And so we ask by the Spirit's enabling that we would live for your pleasure. And so we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.